It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. There was a huge victory in America's war on terror this past week. The leader of ISIS was taken out in a raid in northwestern Syria. And with me today is our Fox News correspondent, Benjamin Hall, reporting from Erbil, Iraq, just across the border. Ben, welcome, and it's great to hear your voice. Thank you, Bill. Pleasure to be with you. This story is changing quickly, and by the time our listeners even hear it, it may have changed again. But there's been some, but not a lot of reporting on how the raid on Baghdadi was carried out. Delta Force, anywhere between 50 and 100 men, with an informant inside who gave us every detail of his compound room by room. What part of this story are we missing that you have? You know, Bill, I think what's really interesting is just how far back the intelligence goes. Uh, First of all, it it is unheard of to have an informer inside ISIS, as close to the heart of ISIS as they did. Uh, And we sat down recently with General Maslum Abdi, the head of the SDF, and he really laid out how this informant came to them, what information he delivered to them. Um, the fall of the, if I can go back a little bit, Bill, the fall sure. of the caliphate took place in March of this year. That was when Baroz fell, the last town that they held. And it was after that that they had started to track Baghdadi. They knew that he left there and he had moved up to the Sunni heartlands on the Iraq-Syria border. Um, and they had reports of his location. And it was around this point that they got in contact. They were approached by um, someone within his circle. He is known to be one of his Baghdadi's couriers. And you'll remember back to the Bin Laden raid, it was one of the couriers that led them to Bin Laden as well. The man that was going back and forth between the two. Well, this man, they're conflicting reports, either that this man was arrested by the Iraqis uh, and then turned, or that one of his relatives had been killed by ISIS Mm -hmm. and he reached out to the SDF. Either way, this intelligence started to develop. The relationship started to develop. And as Baghdadi then started to move, he moved up towards Idlib in the northwest of Syria. The SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, tracked him on the way up to Idlib, and this source moved with him. So they knew for a long time where he was and where he was heading. And it was as early as on May the 15th of this year that the SDF told the U.S. his location. Uh, it, It is quite remarkable how much time then passed until the raid, But during that whole process, they were gathering intelligence. They were learning more about the compound, about his potential movements, who was with him. And so this courier was feeding information back and forth. Uh, It it took a lot of people by surprise, it must be said, that he had even moved up to Idlib. Idlib is a part of Syria which is controlled by Jabhat al-Nusra and Tahrir al-Sham. These are al-Qaeda affiliates. And in the early days of the Syrian war... ISIS split off from Al-Qaeda and they had a vicious fight between the two of them. Technically, this part of Syria would be considered an enemy territory for ISIS. So it was as if he moved from the Sunni heartlands, Baghdadi, after the fall of the caliphate, up hiding among his enemies. And what people think is that he was up there uh, to perhaps reconcile the two, that because of the demise of both ISIS and Al-Qaeda in Syria, he was trying to bring them together. And amidst all this, this informer was feeding information back to the Kurds. Um, so he, Baghdadi was there, the U.S. had him monitored, and they learnt 
that one of his closest allies, Baghdadi's closest allies, was going to move him, move his location. And it was at that point that they decided to strike. They wanted to get him at the compound that they knew, that they had a layout of. Uh, and so they put this final raid together in a matter of a couple of weeks. But uh, they watched, they waited, they had all this information. Uh, and as reports are coming out that uh, this informant brought evidence out that it was Baghdadi, they say that they brought out uh, dirty boxer shorts of his. They say that they were uh, white boxer shorts down to the knees, uh, if you want the details, and, uh, and also blood samples. We don't know how that, that was possible, but they fed DNA back to the SDF and in turn to the US. So they knew exactly wow. where he was. They knew the layout of the compound. They knew that there were tunnels there. They knew the walls. They knew that the door was booby-trapped. Um, and so uh, when the US finally did pull it off, they it, it carried it out uh, exactly as planned. My sense is if they were watching him for seven months that they, they did not feel he would get very far. No, they didn't. And nor did they necessarily think that he had a lot of control uh, operationally over ISIS at that point. Um, you know, ISIS, all these terror groups, frankly, have had to disband somewhat. The leaders have to go underground, and it's very hard to direct smaller cells. And what we've seen them do is actually uh, basically become entities among themselves, both within Syria and also around the world. If you look to Nigeria or to uh, Yemen uh, or even as far as the Philippines, they fund themselves, they plan their attacks themselves. Back in the early days, that was very different. These directions came right from the top. When ISIS controlled the caliphate and territory, um, the, the head Shura Council directed these attacks. That's no longer the case. And I think that uh, the thought was that Baghdadi was not necessarily a threat and not necessarily planning uh, other attacks personally. Nevertheless, of course, this was critical just because he is a figurehead. And having lost the territorial caliphate, you cut off the head of the snake and you, you demoralize the rest of them. Uh, we actually spoke to a lot of ISIS prisoners recently, just a couple of days ago. We asked them what they thought about the death of Baghdadi. And it was mixed. Some didn't believe that he was dead, but others almost shrugged it off and said it doesn't matter because there will be another one taking his place. Um, the fact is that the ideology still remains. Um, so, look, a huge, huge blow to ISIS, of course, but they are strong. And frankly, we've seen it on the ground here, how strong that ideology still is. A yeah. few things I picked up on just listening to your reporting and that of many others that, that I became curious about. And we know when they have these raids, computers, laptops, paperwork, it's all gathered. And in this case, I think they were in in two hours and out, uh, which is quick work. But they also were looking for iCloud passwords. It's the first time I've ever heard that identified. What have you reported on that? Hmm. Uh, Bill, I'll be honest, that's the first time I've heard that as well. Uh, typically, they, uh, all these leaders avoid any kind of uh, electronic communication with the outside. It would seem to me that cloud computing and leaving information uh, in the cloud would be uh, mm -hmm. susceptible to hacking. But uh, we've also seen uh, ISIS harness uh, technology more than any other terror group in the past. Uh, it was frankly their ability to harness the internet and spread their message uh, through social media and other outlets that allow them to grow so strong. So that we know that they have cells in countries like Kuwait um, and Saudi who are there just to churn out the intelligence on, on the Internet. Um, so perhaps they were more advanced uh, and able to uh, to use the cloud. But yeah. I, I, uh, listening to you, I would yeah. be surprised if he... If, yeah, listening to you describe him being on the run and now being holed up in this... Uh, facility, what I think three miles just south of the Turkish border, you get the impression that it's a rather primitive 
uh, primitive operation for him, especially toward the end. But they also run technology in a way that, well, they were the first ones to be head people and post it online. So they, they've known how to use this modern-day form of communication to get their word out. The, the other thing you mentioned I think is very curious, Ben, is that if he was hiding among those, he was with Sunni Arabs who did not like ISIS. If he was living among them, does that suggest something more sinister in a relationship or partnership that we need to be aware of that could be a threat to us or Europe? It does, absolutely. And in fact, the house that he was living in was owned by the head of uh, Hamas al-Slan. I believe um, it is the precursor to al-Qaeda in Syria. It shows that the two of them were coming together. It shows that the two terror networks were looking to partner up again, having fallen apart uh, about four years ago. So, yes, it could indicate that they were planning to, to make another push inside Syria, that they both understood their demise and they wanted to reverse mm. that. Uh, again, what kind of a threat that poses to the West is unclear. One of the reasons that getting rid of the caliphate was so important is that they didn't have a base in which to plan and plot attacks against the West. We don't know what negotiations were going on between the two groups, but certainly it is very significant that Baghdadi was hiding in that part of Syria in what is frankly enemy territory for him. Yeah. The president ordered about a thousand U.S. troops out of Syria. That's been about a week, 10 days ago. When that happens, and you well know from covering these war zones, is when you get a shift in the landscape, things move significantly. So now you've got Americans on the move, Russians, Syrians, Kurds, they're all on the move in that part of Syria. And when that happens, there can be opportunity. You've been there for the past week. Did that open the door to Baghdadi? Has it opened the door to other opportunities, perhaps, in Syria? What have you learned? I don't think it opened the door to Baghdadi. I think that his movement was severely restricted. But it did open the door to many other people, primarily Russia, Turkey, the Syrian regime, and then by proxy, you might say, Iran. Uh, it was within a matter, practically, of the U.S. pulling out that Turkey began its operation to invade northern Syria. Uh, Turkey has always considered those parts of northern Syria as Turkish. They're part, part of the old Ottoman Empire. Um, Russia, of course, wanted to quickly move in and make sure the U.S. didn't come back uh, at any point, take over those lands. The Syrian government has been trying to recapture those lands since the beginning of the Syrian war. And they have also done a deal with the Kurds and were able to pull up. So... Many, many actors in the region knew that this was an opportunity for them and they capitalized on it very quickly. You might go as far as to say that it is too late to reverse that because the Russians aren't going to pull out. The Turks aren't going to pull back. The Syrian uh, government forces are not going to leave the border towns where they are. So a lot of people have capitalized on it. There's no doubt about that. And of course, the, the, the groups that win when you have chaos like this and so many uh, international actors playing like this uh, are the terror groups you know isis was formed out of the chaos of the syrian civil war because there were so many groups fighting each other they were the ones that came out on top and you know uh, stability is what helps to defeat isis and the sdf the kurdish forces were offering that stability in northern syria now that the turks have come in they're no longer able to do that but you know i was here back in march when the the caliphate fell and back then the kurdish sdf were looking to build a democratic free liberal you know, homeland in the north, one that was going to be a great ally of the US, that's all fallen apart because they're being picked apart by Turkey, Russia and Syria. Um, and frankly, what we do have now is real chaos in the region. And yes, to a certain degree, it is the terror organizations that it may benefit from that. Mm. 
I hear traffic in the background. Just where are you? What do you sing? And what are people saying? Well, we are we are up in uh, we're in Erbil. It's across the border from Syria. It's uh, it's remarkable. It's just a few hours away, and yet this is a bastion of peace. It, it, this is the Kurdish autonomous region in northern Iraq, which was supported by the U.S. after the uh, the Iraq War, and in fact after the first Gulf War, and which has really uh, b- blossomed as a result. You know, it's a it's almost a first world city. We're in a, we're in a great hotel, uh, and that's what people hoped would happen in northern Syria as well. There are resources there. Um, granted, the U.S. is going in to protect those resources, but people here are frankly upset about the way that this has all played out. They are disappointed with President Trump for his decision. They feel that not only has he ceded ground to Russia, Iran, Turkey. Um, and the Syrian government. But he's also perhaps left a message that it's harder to trust the U.S. when it comes to um, working with them in this part of the world. And the fact is that countries like Russia, uh, even perhaps China, are are often easier allies because they don't demand things like uh, democratic change and they're happy to sell you weapons no matter what. Mm -hmm. And we're already seeing a shift in the whole region, frankly. You know, Saudi, Qatar, um, UAE, who are developing closer ties with countries like China and Russia because there are no questions asked from them and uh, they're happy to let, uh, yeah. let them carry on as they so like. It, so it, there's a real shift happening yeah. in the region, there's no doubt. The, the way you describe Erbil, it's almost an oasis in that part of the world, given the amount of unrest that's around you. But when you're inside Syria, how do you do your job? What, what's a day like for you? Yeah, it, it can be very difficult. I mean, it, it starts off simply crossing the border. I mean, that uh, you go across the Tigris River, and from there it's a lot of mud tracks for often long distances at a time, and you are sleeping wherever you can. There are always small hotels or guest houses. We're lucky enough to embed with the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, and they are uh, certainly were incredibly welcoming back when they were allied with the U.S. Now they're allied with the Syrians. It's a bit more complicated. But... Uh, when you're up at the front lines, you are sleeping wherever you can. You're sleeping on floors. You're, 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 there's no heating. You have a generator. Um, you're getting whatever food you can carry with you. So it can be difficult, but you're moving constantly, constantly. Yeah. You never want to stay in one place for long, and the story's always moving. This front line in particular is, you know, three, 400 miles wide, and the flashpoints happen all over the place. So keeping up, them, up with them is very difficult. Uh, in terms of the logistics of getting information back, we have BGAN satellites, and we just dial in as best we can. But uh, it's, it, it can be tricky, but it's, uh, it's rewarding, too. You feel yeah. that you really are at the, at the very front uh, of geopolitics. Two more questions on this, Ben. I don't know if you've seen much of the recent conflict, but have you heard it? In other words, have you been close enough to it? We, we have, yes. Yeah, we've been right up on the front lines. And uh, we, uh, a couple of days ago, we were up in a place called Teltamer, uh, and it was one of the more confusing situations I've ever been in because we were in bed with the SDF Kurds. Uh, you might say they're a ragtag bunch, uh, but loyal. Um, and they had whatever weapons they could get their hands on. A kilometer in front of us were the Turkish army who were shelling and pushing towards us. And then out of nowhere, the Syrian government forces arrived. There were about 200 of them. Now, I've covered the Syrian civil war for five, six years, and we've always been terrified of the Syrian government forces. They've arrested numerous friends of mine. You often disappear if they capture you. These are the ones that have bombed mercilessly um, the whole of this country. And suddenly they appeared on the scene with us, uh, and we were standing with three powers three different countries from three different sides of this very complicated conflict uh, no idea where we stood uh, it was really surreal but that is the face of this conflict there are so wow. many different actors there was a russian patrol about 15 minutes from us at the time there are turkish drones overhead 
it is thoroughly confusing. And these Syrians welcomed us because at that moment we were being attacked by the Turks. So technically we were on their side. But if we had moved an hour north, we would have been uh, with with some Kurds who would have been against the Syrian um, government. It, wow. it is incredibly complicated. And Russia is the one brokering this whole deal between Turkey, the Kurds and the Syrian government and trying to keep it all together. But in the last couple of days, we're hearing that is really uh, hanging by a thread. Yeah, that is a remarkable story. Last question for now, Ben. I think we probably met five years ago. And at the time, you were a young reporter, and I think you were moving through northern Iraq. Correct my, correct my knowledge as we go along here. And then you wrote a book about uh, the emerging Islamic threats. If that was six years ago, and now we are in 2019, how do you think the threat has changed? And when you think about that, where do you think it's headed? Hmm. Six years ago, the focus was the Syrian civil war. It was about, uh, we were coming out of the Arab Spring. There was optimism across the region. People thought that uh, democracy would come and uh, countries like this would embrace it. That never happened. We learned that in the Iraq war, that you can't impose democracy on certain countries. And when the Syrian Arab uprising happened, uh, it was very quickly put down. The U.S. under the Obama administration didn't really pick a side. They half-heartedly supported the Syrian uh, rebels. Uh, and as a result, the Assad regime started to, to sweep across the country. It was in that chaos that ISIS founded. And I think what people had started to do was look for any kind of stability that could prevent ISIS from growing. Then actually we had a coalition because ISIS became the biggest threat. No one was concerned with the Syrian government anymore or the Turks or anyone else. Um, ISIS was the biggest threat and even Iran were trying to attack ISIS. And so that was a point that everyone had one single goal. It was to defeat the evil caliphate. Um, that has now happened. And nobody quite knows what to do in the aftermath. And it could go in a variety of different ways. One of them is that uh, ISIS form again in the chaos. We've seen here that there are thousands upon thousands of ISIS followers, either in camps or at large uh, among the population. They could easily rise again because there's no central government that's yet able to, to, to fight them and the U.S. has pulled back. But... Um, I, you know, it's confusing. It, Russia may be able to broker a deal in which Turkey stops at the buffer zone and Syria ends there uh, where it is. My feeling is that these countries will continue to fight and there is going to be a bigger flashpoint ahead. That You cannot have so many powers with so many competing interests in such a small part of the world, such a small little area of this country. Um, and it only takes one miscalculation for, for that to explode. We saw a Russian patrol attack two days ago. No one knows who did it. But if the Turks accidentally strike a Russian patrol, if the Syrians accidentally strike a Turkish patrol, that is going to, to fan the flames and we will end up in, in a major conflict. Let's not forget that you have Israel constantly bombing inside Syria to prevent Hezbollah and Iran from uh, stretching their forces. You know, there are so many different parts going on here that uh, it seems difficult to imagine that there won't be continued and possibly escalating conflict. Um, and difficult to predict along the way as well. Benjamin Hall, thank you for your time. To you and the crew, be safe, travel well, and I look forward to seeing you again in person very soon. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Bill. Me too. You've been listening to Benjamin Hall, Fox News reporter on the ground along the Iraqi-Syrian border. And I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time.
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.